right, welcome back to another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. It's a big Texas week uh, for me personally and uh, professionally now on the podcast. Um, big Cowboys game this Sunday. Two Dallas Stars TV sh- or TV games were on regular TV. Pretty great. ESPN, TNT, let's go. Shout out. Uh, and then I also started a uh, audible book about Parkland and the shooting of JFK. So pretty, pretty big Texas week. And then we got Lone Star now. Yeah, we got all that cool stuff, I guess. And yeah. We have Lone Star. <laughs> and we also have a special guest in the house. Uh, lifelong Texan himself. Tanner has come back to join a special guest. Tanner, say hi. I whoop whoop. Exactly. You for you. I was gonna say like the biggest Texas thing of the week is me being on the podcast. Yeah, I one hundred percent segue that. I messed up. I also that's I, that's all right. I got your back, but I also really like that <laughs> woof woof. I don't know if that might become like a, a new thing we adapt, but right. I kind of like that woof woof. So we have to make like every guest come on the show. And we're like, okay, so then when we introduce you, you have to go woof woof like a dog, and then you could start speaking. I have a I mean, question. It's yeah. not that hard. We've About your podcast. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Uh, I, ha- I have listened. I've listened to every episode. But have you guys done an episode on one of those movies where like a dog talks? Oh, my God. Or like a dog has a special talent, like an Air Bud or like any of those movies where like about a dog. We need a, a month thing. of that. You need a month well, of dogs because it's in your name. Yeah. Are there any good movies that star a dog? Dog. I mean. Shannon Tatum. Is that good? I never saw it. I've heard good things. <laughs> I'm not going to go out of my way to watch the Channing Tatum dog movie, but I've heard good things. Marley and Me. You could do Marley and Me. That's a sad one. Yeah. I had a yellow lab that was dying when I saw that movie, so it was great. <laughs> oh, great. I, uh, I remember the first Homeward Bound being kind of fun as a kid. I also remember that being a movie where the animals talked and their mouths like never matched whatever the dialogue was that they were trying to get them to say. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we need to do a dog month. I'd be totally excited to do that. The dog's do, like, purpose. The power yeah. of the dog. I was just, you just stole my bit. God damn you. I was going to be like, we should do like puppy love. We should be doing like Iowa dogs and then just cap on the power of the dog. Just like the most depressing dog centric movie. That's not Bolt, yeah, maybe leave Bolt. Iowa dogs alone. but <laughs> yeah, Maybe Turner and Hooch for a week. Turner and Hooch. And then you could shift into those movies from like the 80s where there was like always like a chimp in it. Like oh, Clint Eastwood's yeah. a truck driver with a chimp as a best friend. What's that about? It's about Clint Eastwood being a truck driver with a chimp as a <laughs> yeah. best friend. It's pretty much the whole movie, yeah. I uh, I don't know if we should probably like plan to program months of just you know animal movies. I think that might kind of become a little stale, a little variant. Year six of the show is just like, all right, it's Parrot December, guys. Let's get ready. It, just to follow the theme of the the dogs, the dogs theme. <laughs> Luckily, we haven't burnt all the great movies yet, so we still have things like this, like Lone Star, to talk about, which I'm excited. Um, yeah. We always introduce a movie and ask why we're doing it, and uh, I think just because we're obviously joined by Tanner this week, lifelong Texan, he's probably got some personal insight and perspective on this movie that Josh and I just won't ever have. Uh, exactly. And he had a pretty good letterbox review. Usually fall into one or two quadrants, as we discussed off mic. Um, you're either the sardonic, sarcastic. Josh, or you're kind you of maybe call me a little unfunny more. If you want, you can call me unfunny. <laughs> They're not funny. Every time I write them, I'm a little ashamed of myself. Do you like consistently write letterbox reviews, Josh? Because if so, yeah, I they're not good. They're not good. You don't like. You can just see what I watch and just leave it from there, Tanner. Because I, I don't, don't even want you know. To click on it and don't be ashamed. 
I don't even know if I follow you, to be honest, because I barely wow. look at Letterboxd. This like, is a then... crushing start to the episode for everyone. Ouch. Um, but Or you fall into the quadrant of Tanner, who has like maybe a little bit more eloquent reviews. <laughs> some of them. I'm sure there's some stupid ones in there. Where's Josh on this? I feel like I'm looking at who I'm following. I can't find him. I'm like literally like, where is he? You got to find my skeleton in the desert, Tanner. You got to do it. You got to figure out who I am. You just go uh, by your regular it... name on it, or do you have like a, <laughs> yeah. a screen name? We can sort this out offline. Yeah, yeah, we'll sort this out after. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got carried away. Uh, but anyways, his letterbox review really moved me. Apparently, he doesn't really seem to remember it much, but uh, we <laughs> yeah, always enjoy having him on. Yeah. <laughs> we always enjoy having him on, and this seemed like the right film for it. Uh, so, Josh, obviously, this is your first time watching it. What's your reaction to it out of the gate? Um, I'm sure this is something you guys felt when you first watched it. I did not expect this movie to be at all what it is. No. Uh, I, I, Tanner has recommended this movie to me for a while, and I've seen the poster of like the badge and the skull and like Lone Star, Chris Cooper, cop. Yeah, the the poster is what made me like want to watch. I was like a skull and a Texas yeah. Ranger star. Let's go. And My I was kind like, of movie. yeah, I was like, cool. So it's gonna be like a fun little action, like proto hell or high water sort of thing about like a cop in Texas and like small town living. And then I watched it, <laughs> and it's not at all about that. It's far more about the characters and the scene and the setting and living and grappling with this kind of small town of the issues that come with it. And the movie it really reminded me of, and I think I've told Tanner this, is like Manchester by the Sea. Of I feel like both of these movies are like our regional things that are like, oh, that gets what it's like to live here. Mm-hmm. For sure. I also thought like it was a different thing. But I thought it was going to be like a, uh, a more of a like detective yeah killer movie like murder mystery like not seven but like more seven than what it was like i kind of got that's what i thought it was and you're right it's like it's about it's about the small town it's about the people that live in it and their history and about the town's history it's like, you know it's it's it does kind of have like a like kenneth lonergan's films are like how you can they make it's a movie about everyday people and like working class everyday people and normal just people and that's what was really appealing about it to me. But I didn't know that was the case. It's much more stage play to me mm-hmm. and poetic this presentation than it is like a neo-noir, which I think that's kind of the label I've seen it mm-hmm. under. And I just don't really know if it, I fully I fully go there with that. Um, but I loved it. I, I saw it recently, actually, because I've heard of it and I saw your review. And I was like, the same thing as Josh, where it's like, somebody's definitely told me to watch this. Mm-hmm. countless times and i never have <laughs> i saw it was on uh streaming for a little bit so i just threw it on and i loved it um really interesting flick i think it's reckoning with a lot of things that are topical once again which we'll probably get into later in the show but uh yeah i enjoyed it and it it's a it's a john sales film uh john sales who he did uh you might have seen eight men out the movie about the white Sox. Um, oh, we got some, we got some John Sales stuff. Don't you worry, my friend. <laughs> is John Sales from Texas, or is he like? I don't think so. No, um, he's from he's from Schenectady, New York, I believe. Oh, what? But uh, yeah, but he does this a lot because he, I've, Eight Men Out's great. Baby, it's used really good. He did. Um, he's done a handful of movies. He's been in movies. He's worked with Spike Lee before. Like he's in Malcolm X. He's if you've ever watched the Ken Burns baseball documentary. 
he's one of the people interviewed in it. Uh, he's not for that, but he he's able to like capture the cultures of wherever he you know makes a movie about like very authentically as if he was from there though like it, it you would think like it does feel like a movie made by somebody from texas the way that he understands it he always has a way of being able to take time periods in certain areas and put them under a microscope exactly like you said in an authentic and real way. He's great with casting. Chris Cooper, re- return customer. He's in a lot of his works, which I always enjoy. I think Chris Cooper is probably one of the most underrated actors that we have going, in my personal opinion. Um, I love Chris Cooper. So John Sales, I think, is really kind of like somebody we'll talk about throughout the show. We've got some really interesting things. Tanner, I got some stuff on here. Uh, Josh and I, every week, do a rundown. I don't know if Josh made you privy to it before we did the he show. He did not. But no. Okay, so I have some really <laughs> zany John Sales stuff in there too. He has a very interesting, varied career. Kind of a pivotal point for a lot of stuff. So I think without further mm-hmm. ado, we should probably just kind of get into him as a person. Introduction? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so John Sales gets to start as a novelist in the mid-1970s, uh, moves on to film shortly thereafter, but like a lot of directors of his era, he works with Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, and Ron Howard for Roger Corman. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've talked about a lot of these people on the show, so I think this is probably something people know by now, but just like one of the pioneers of like giving us so many great directors throughout the 70s and into the 80s that uh, probably wouldn't have gotten the same kind of heart and sense of ambition if they hadn't worked with him. So I always like mm-hmm. to, I always like when he traces back to somewhere. So irrelevant, but I, I was just saying, like Roger Corman, I learned recently, like Marty said when he made Mean Streets. It was all the only reason he got to make it was because of all the people he met on Corman. That's all a Corman crew on that movie. And I was like, oh, like, wow, that's really cool that like that really was like a great kind of almost like school for those filmmakers to go through. 100%. And like giving them actual, tangible, real world work and not just kind of like, here's some money to try and make whatever you want. It's like, well, let's like go through the ranks. Um, but anyways, mm-hmm. Sales makes his feature debut with Return of the Sea Caucus 7 in 1979. He uses $30,000 he made for writing scripts and rewriting scripts for Corman, uh, including Joe Dante's Piranha, which releases mm-hmm. in 1978. Yeah. Um, sales film, Sea Caucus 7, follows a group of friends spending a weekend together, entanglements that ensue. It earned positive reviews and found a spot on many top 10 lists at the end of the year and was in 1997 inducted into the National Registry. So after that, he goes on to direct Baby It's You and Liana, uh, which is, I don't think I've seen Baby It's You. Talk about it. It's good. It's a good little, it's a good little like coming of age movie. It's, um, uh, what's her face? She's an After Hours, uh, Arquette. uh, uh, Rosanna? Rosanna Arquette. She's great in it. And she's in it. And uh, it's just like a, it's set in, I think it was the 60s. It's a lot of like, that has like that doo-wop, like instead of New Jersey, that like East Coast doo-wop kind of vibe. And uh, it's just like a really solid, like coming of age movie early on in his career. I, I, I liked watching it. And uh, at one scene, he has no lines, but in the background, you can see a young Robert Downey Jr. He's just Whoa. there. Ooh. Yeah, but he has no lines. <laughs> He's just like at a table and he has no lines or anything. But That's a nice little fun little Easter egg. One thing I want to ask you guys real quick. Is like so. Are the two movies that he's made kind of going into all this stuff? There are two coming of age movies: Return of the, the Sakaka Seven, and then this. I feel like that's just is that like a common thing throughout his work? Because I feel it very strongly in Lone Star of this coming of age story about people always stuck in something and dealing with their past, 
and then trying to become better people or how they change because of the past that they're reflecting on. I mean, it's a solid point you could really make if you go back and look throughout his filmography. I mean, even some of the other movies that like I'm thinking here, because I've seen a couple of these. Um, Tanner, maybe you can help me because I'm forgetting. Oh, Silver City with Chris Cooper, and he's running for mayor. Um, and then like somebody like kind of like has like a nefarious plot that comes out to try and like bring him down. Even that movie has like some father-son themes like woven throughout and like the B storyline, C storyline. So it is kind of something that I I noted too and clocked even with like Payne's storyline and like almost the repetition of the same mistakes, you know, with his son. Um, but yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way, Josh. That's like that journo coming out in you. You always got those nice, <laughs> those nice through lines. Yeah. His movies are always like, what I would they why he appeals to me is just because it's such a like a working class film. He's like the working man's director. Like even like Eight Men Out, which is about ball players, it's in a period of time where they're not getting paid very much and their owners are abusing them and they're not, you know, it's like horrible. You know, they're having to like wash their own uniforms and like, you know, they're screwing like David Strayer and out of his like pitching crap. It just, it, he always, I love that he makes films that are about sort of just regular working class people. And it's always about relationships and people's relationships with each other and sort of the social dynamics and everything. And Baby It's You, there is a lot of like, you know, because there are these young kids, it's like their parents' sort of parenting of them and has a lot of effect on them too. There's a lot of that, I guess, also in Lone Star too sort of reckoning with that yeah it's interesting too that like while he is getting work like we're talking about right now you know he gets a macarthur fellowship right after working on sakaka seven and liana you know what i mean so this is a guy who is obviously really respected and people see the genius in his work but Mm -hmm. he also doesn't really kind of get the credit and like i think maybe the the respect he he deserves until almost the 90s when he comes up with a generation that's like later than him you know like a, a paul thomas anderson kevin smith the soderberghs those kind of guys i feel like that's when like people kind of maybe start to like clock his movies a little bit more but like mm-hmm. he's always been around and working you know in some capacity forever well i feel like part of that is when you get to the 70s and 80s you have people who are now having access to far more movies than ever before you know dvd to some extent vhs laser discs in the early 90s and so he's coming up and really being noticed widespread in an era where anyone can go make a movie now or like the increasing feeling is that anyone can go make a movie um and we'll talk about i think at some point later like why doesn't he have a bigger career why didn't this movie have as much respect or like recognition as it maybe deserves but i think he's definitely someone that people come to in the 90s that they can access his work. They're like, oh no, that guy's really good. I'm going to steal from this. And then by stealing from him, they become famous while he's still John Sayles. Yeah. I mean, that... you can't you can't watch this and not like see like, oh, okay, like, yeah, he's, there's other people who are totally cribbing from yes. him. You know what I mean? <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, but after he does these two films, he gets a MacArthur Fellowship, as I mentioned. He puts this money into a feature called The Brother from Another Planet, which is a sci-fi feature shot on location in Harlem with a predominantly black cast and crew. Uh, the film follows like a humanoid who escapes bondage on another world and crash lands in the New York Harbor. Because he's black in appearance, <laughs> he finds himself at home among the people of Harlem. But a shady and nefarious group of men in black seek to return him to the planet from which he escaped. Uh, have either of you seen this? No. no, but I was looking at it on 
like IMDb when I rewatched Lone Star because I was like, what? Because it has the same actor that plays Pain. Uh, the lead is Joe Morton. Joe Morton, baby. It's big Joe Morton. It's Big Joe. And guess who else is in that movie? Former Colonel Tom Parker Award winner Steve James from To Live and Die in L.A. Wow. Wow. That comes full circle on the Road Dogs <laughs> podcast. Uh, I love Joe Morton. We got a lot of Joe Morton stuff coming up later. Only guy, awesome. repeat customer for the Speed franchise. Comes back for one and two, Tanner. That's a shame. As Mac. He came back for two. I did not even know that. Two. I've never seen Speed 2. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Get off this podcast. <laughs> Can you imagine the rhythm of the room? They're like, look, we don't have Keanu. We don't have don't Sandra have Bullock. But, but we have Joe Morton. <laughs> Joe Morton's coming back. Max coming back. <laughs> Green light. Let's go. <laughs> well, we're already taking detours left and right. So we might as well just take another one right now. Uh, I have a road dogs detour that's just absolutely wild here. Big touching point in Hollywood history. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, Sales is hired by Spielberg to write a script for Night Skies, which is supposed to be a horror sequel to Close Encounters. So Spielberg's original treatment for this is called Watch the Skies. It's about 11 malicious extraterrestrial scientists who try to communicate with chickens, cows, and other livestock to discover which of Earth's animal species are sentient before turning their unwelcome attention to a human family and dissecting their farm animals. Uh, rumor has it Spielberg reserved a spot on the inaugural 1980 space shuttle flight in order to film the Earth and its moon from orbit for the film's opening sequence. That's, that's just the start. Okay. That's so, a lot to um, take in first yeah. and foremost. <laughs> for up top. Yeah, I just want you guys to just kind of be prepared. Like, strap yourselves in. Um, so Spielberg wanted Lawrence Kasdan to write the script, which I find hilarious because Kasdan cribs a lot of Seacocka 7 for uh, The Big Chill, which is also like a big acclaimed coming of age and like friends coming back together years later movie. Uh, he wants him to write the script for Skies, but he's too busy on Empire Strikes Back. So Spielberg's actually a big fan of Piranha, kind of lampoons Jaws, which is something Sales is great at. So he hires him to work a treatment out and then actually hires him on to write the script. Uh, people who have read it have called Skies Straw Dogs with Aliens, which sounds really good. Uh, Spielberg chose makeup artist and special effects master Rick Baker. Well, He's working on American Werewolf in London at the time. Speaking of it all coming back, show. baby, like this is just a Come full on. circle episode. We brought up Kevin Come Smith, on. Tanner's on the Chase and Amy hey. episode. Come on. Exactly. I mean, cloud, this is our Cloud Atlas, really. This is our uh, Cloud they Atlas. Build, <laughs> they start to build a working prototype of the lead alien that costs $70,000. Um, so Sales delivers his first and only draft in the end of the screenplay. It features five aliens, one of them named Buddy, who's kind and befriended the human family's autistic son. Hate the story beat. Sales script opened with Scar, who is described in the script as having a beak-like mouth and eyes like a grasshopper, <laughs> killing farm animals by touching them with a long bony finger, which gave off an eerie light. But in the end, oh. Buddy gets marooned on Earth by his mean-spirited peers cowering under the shower of an, shadow of an approaching hawk. Um, although there's some differences over the new concept, Spielberg and Sales part am amicably and the film project kind of continues on without him. But Spielberg's at the time working on Raiders and like he's kind of having second thoughts, doing something kind of like <laughs> killing Nazis and all these crazy spirits and skeletons and snakes. He kind of wants to get back to the tranquility and spirituality of like Close Encounters. So Melissa Matheson, who's soon to marry Harrison Ford at the time reads the sales script and they're both kind of touched by the idea of the alien creature kind of being emotional and sweet and making a connection with the human family. 
so Spielberg gets back from Tunisia and Hawaii where Raiders are shooting. He kind of dumps the idea of skies, but keeps the elements about the aliens and goes with the idea of Matheson dubbed as E.T. Months later, E.T., the extraterrestrial, is released. <laughs> becomes one of the most successful and iconic movies of all time. Wow. I so John, yeah. John Sales got jobs? We're not done. We're not done. We're not okay. done. Okay. This Poor is like Dan the Dolphin. <laughs> Horror elements would then be used in Toby Hooper's film Poltergeist, which involves a family terrorized by evil spirits. Mm. They part amicably on these due to creative differences, but it's fascinating to think that Sales' hand is in the cookie jar for two of probably the most big and like iconic movies of that time and of all time. That would make me mad. That made me mad if I came up with half of E.T. and nobody knew. Yeah, and now you're getting that ET check, you know. I mean, yeah. everybody all the time. Anywhere. You know, I the finger thing in ET that was me, not Spielberg. That was all me. That was me. Yeah. Well, don't worry. He's got some other great crazy ideas for Spielberg. Well, we'll talk about here in a little bit. Can I say one thing real quick before we move on to that? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I I find Spielberg coming out of Raiders and being like, ah, oh, it's too like dark and gruesome or whatever, kind of weird because he literally makes the Last Crusade shortly thereafter, which is dark and weird and gory. And I know that's a different time in his life, obviously. His, his divorce is going on or is shortly thereafter. But, like, I find that so weird that he'd be so averse to that and then go on to do something exactly like it. It's really strange because I thought the same exact thing. That's probably his most mean-spirited movie, yeah. right? Crusade? Are you, are you mean Temple of Doom? Temple, Temple of Doom. Doom. Temple, of yeah. Doom. Yeah. Temple yeah, yeah, yeah. of Doom. Temple of Doom. I was, yeah. Yeah, yeah your Temple of Doom is like right. So E.T. sandwich in the middle of Raiders in Temple of Doom. I believe maybe, so, yeah. Maybe he, so. Got, maybe he got all his like wholesome family stuff out doing E.T. I think, uh, but Temple of Doom, I think, was made. Was it made when he had just got divorced or was getting yeah. a divorce? Yes, it was. Because some people say that, I've heard people say like, that's why like, uh, the, the 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 love interest for Indy in that movie is so annoying, and because it's like Spielberg's mm-hmm. just mad about his wife or whatever. Yeah, that might check out. Probably not a great beat for it's him. Kind of like but... like when James Cameron would get like divorced. Always the next movie, the female character is like kind of annoying, and you're like, oh, he's getting <laughs> yeah. a divorce. That's why. Yeah, and the main the the main character is just like drinking whiskey and just like complaining about the fact that he's married to said woman. <laughs> So mm-hmm. the, the Spielberg filmography goes Raiders 81, E.T. 82. Again, like, what a one-two run. And then you're like, oh, well, John Sales kind of, you know, did half of that. Uh, and then after 82, it's, it's Temple of Doom 84. So it must have been the divorce that makes him go like, all right, I'm down to go get more dark and weird. But John Sales gets completely jobbed in the process and robbed of, like, a ton of money and fame. I mean, to have those two concepts play so heavily into both of those films, I mean, just wild. Um, he does a lot of other rewriting work throughout the 80s, but it's 1987's Matawan starring Chris Cooper, his his main dog, who he brings back many a time. Woof, woof. This kind of reestablishes him as a director. It's been restored into the Criterion Collection and was nominated for an Academy Award for its cinematography. So, good stuff. But his next film is one that I think we've all three seen and talked about. Uh, it's Eight Men Out. I think it's on the short list for best baseball movies, personally. Stacked cast, yeah. great script. Goes on to inspire Burns to work with some of these people on baseball, like you talked about, Tanner. Uh, but the movie didn't even make its budget back at the time, which is astounding to me in retrospect. It That's stars John Cusack, Cusack picture. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd, <laughs> Big Dog Mikey Rooker. It don't make its money back? Come on now. Like, that's crazy, right? Those guys are at their hottest. 
they are i see i w i assumed a lot of them were just kind of at the time probably still like just character actors but john cusack at least i figured would have been like because that's post like say anything that's like what so he's a star is he's, a star. Yeah, he's 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 big that's, that's strange i mean you guys are, are missing a giant chunk of this though in, in 1988, the Chicago White Sox, the, the infamous Black Sox, they're still reviled. Mm -hmm. No one wants to respect and love them. And I, and I wanted to talk about this earlier. We were talking about how John Sales is a working class director. And Tanner, you made the good point about how he's choosing to make a movie about baseball players who are working class little people. Mm -hmm. But he's also choosing to make a movie about people that were reviled and people who were seen as like evil. And I think there's a lot of stuff in his movies, especially in Lone Star, about like dirty people doing things they don't really love to do, a.k.a. the Sam character taking the sheriff job, because he needs to do something else for himself. So it's about using your profession to then better yourself personally, but always in this, like, dirty, unhappy way of always feeling, like, stuck, kind of. And, like, to the theme of, like, regular working-class people, he also makes movies about, like, complicated people. Mm. And that's a big thing in, I think, Lone Star, of, like, just because maybe somebody did this bad thing, like, there's a context around it. And, like, you know, Buddy Deeds is beloved by the town, but then there's also these things that he might have done, and then Chris Cooper, like, it's too good to be true. Like, so it's kind of interesting. He makes movies about complicated people, you know? Like, Eight Men Out, like, they're reviled, they're cheaters, they all these things, but then in the context, it's... They're being screwed by the owner, and, like, yeah. they're... You know, like, and so... There's something interesting about how his films kind of also sort of like pull back the curtain on things too. To sort of it, they it com he complicates things, you know. Like it's it's never easy with John Sayles. It's it's complicated, and Lone Star is very think, complicated. And I think at this point, it's just we have to talk about just how the fact of like all of his films are reckoning with like some kind of political history throughout America, usually or some mm -hmm. form of American history, and. Mm -hmm not only reckoning with these complex people, but reckoning with complex ideas and not really like saying, hey, this is the absolution of this idea. I have the answer. More just letting the reckoning of those ideas play out, which I find mm -hmm. much more satisfying as a viewer than somebody kind of trying to maybe guide me to the destination of like what they want me to think about whatever the issue or topic is. I feel like that's a lot of the novelists in him coming out throughout all of his movies is the one thing I think we've kind of glossed over is that he's a writer-director at this time in the, the 80s and 90s and kind of throughout his entire career. And so he's taking his novelist background of like very interior lives of these characters and going through the gray areas with them to all of his movies in a time where especially the 80s, like we talked about in First Blood last week, it was increasingly our heroes are our heroes. And guess what? They're awesome. <laughs> you know, like, like Stallone is tearing through everybody. Arnold's tearing through everybody. And then John Sales is in his niche of the corner, always making movies about like very complicated things that are often criticizing very overt parts of American life. And the eighties is it's, it's Reagan's America. So like yeah. somebody commenting on like, you know, uh, critiquing that was not, Probably and also it's interesting because like even like like even Martin Scorsese had trouble making movies in the eighties. Like he couldn't get movies made because mm -hmm. the eighties it was it was the kind of movies that were made were not movies about working class people. It was Arnold totally. and Stallone. It was Star Wars and Raiders. It was it was the Spielberg Lucas Hollywood and the people who were trying to copy that the post Star Wars Hollywood. I get like that era and. 
there's not really room for movies about that many working class people. Like you have like James O. Brooks does like Terms of Endearment, and he's got those kind. And like you get a few movies like that uh, that kind of hit really big. But in general, like movies about like why the it was why like the White Sox cheating is kind of complicated, and maybe you know like you kind of feel for them isn't the movie that people want to see. I guess you know at that time. Well, it's also amazing to me too. Um, like all of like independent cinema now, you know, this movie's made on a $3 million budget. Like independent cinema now is like $20 million movies premiere at Sundance <laughs> on the regular. You know what I mean? All of these things too, made on like such a shoestring budget. Like mm-hmm. being able to like have the pragmat- pragmatic abilities that he has to, as a director as well to like get these pictures done and like with such limited money. I agree with you on Martin Scorsese too. I mean, there's some gems in the 80s, uh, some of his best work, Raging Bull. I lo- Josh and I are huge after hours heads obviously. Yeah. Um but Raging Bull though, even that, like that's a 70s movie that comes out yeah. in the 80s. Like that feels like yeah. the last 70s movie, Raging the last Bull. Last gasp. Like, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. it's the end at that. So mm-hmm. like yeah, like it's it's struggled to get like after out. King of Comedy is his first like real '80s movie, and that got like the worst movie of the year by like certain critics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which I I love. It's one of my favorite movies of his. Yeah, it's hilarious. Like it's great. But and then also he did Last Temptation of Christ, and so he gets death threats by all the crazy people and everything. And but yeah. yeah. The other part yeah, I would also want to mention is like Martin Scorsese can get the movies he wants in the '80s made to some degree because he's still Martin Scorsese in the day. And same with Spielberg. But when you're John Sales and you just got screwed out of E.T. and Poltergeist, it's especially hard. And that's why Madeline is such a small-scale movie. And then even Eight Men Out, I think it must have been part of a function of this is a story I want to tell, but it's also not super expensive. You're not going to need a ton of extras for that exactly. movie the way you would now. Yeah. No, I, that's the thing that I really respect about him is like he's making independent films when independent films are like – Truly independent. I I think of him along the lines of like somebody like John Cassavetes as like someone who is just the lineage of American independent film. If you really think about it and look back on it, and similar to like Cassavetes, like Cassavetes, the one thing is like Cassavetes, he made like some studio movies. He makes uh uh a few studio uh like two studio movies or whatever before he starts doing married like, the mob uh, or whatever. Uh, well, he did um. I can't, but he did a child is waiting with Burt Lancaster and Judy Carlin. And then another one, which I've seen, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was actually pretty good. I liked it, but, uh, <laughs> uh, it stars the guy that sings, uh, you know, beyond the sea. What's his name? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, Bobby the Darren? old like singer. Yes. Bobby Darren. Oh, Bobby sorry Darren. guys. I don't know Bobby Darren. Sorry. Come on. Fucking... What? Come you on. No old. I know Bobby though? Darren, but I'm not busting yeah. up Bobby Darren's exactly. IMDb but, movie career. But well, anyways, like... I mean, also he goes on to act in movies like, yeah. you know, dirty. Oh. He's in the dirty dozen. He's also in Rosemary's baby. Like he knows like when to do big things and when he has like the ability to do things for himself. But he was very particular and he never was like going to sell out. Like, I'll make my movie, no, I'll put my not. house up to make the movie I want to make, you know? And yeah. oh, he would go and he'll do, he'll go do a Rosemary's Baby. That's working with a, with a great filmmaker like Roman Polanski. Or um, I know he did, like, he did uh, Don Siegel's The Killers. He said, like, he needed money, you know? Well, <laughs> I actually, I just said he didn't really sell out. But John Cassavetes actually has a great quote I saw where he said, it's okay to sell out if you use the money you made from selling out to make something really great and honest. And that was kind of... <laughs> So it kind of goes against what I said, but John Sayles, when you're making, he makes movies about working class people, it makes sense that those movies would be low to middling budgets. 
because generally mm -hmm. big budgets don't go to stories about regular working class people, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's oh, no, yeah. almost fitting, like, in its way. It's, like, fitting, like, he would. He, the, the way he tells his stories, it, it makes sense that all of his movies are kind of small to middling in that way. It's not... It's not mystifying to me why he doesn't get the big budgets, but for something like baseball, an American pastime, I do. I think Josh, you bring like a great historical context to it as well about the team kind of being historically reviled at this point in time. It is surprising with that amount of people to me and the budget he got that that movie isn't as bigger as it is. It really is to me. I mean, it's definitely respected as far as people who like baseball and stuff like that, but like budget wise and like a box office wise, it it kind of flops. Yeah, because and also baseball still like in the, I mean I'm Josh probably better to ask for this too, but like in the '80s is baseball still like I know football's there now and uh, NBA's getting up there. It's got you know Bird and Magic and Jordan and stuff, but like is baseball still the pastime in the '80s? Like is it still because like in the '80s also gets Major League, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, The Natural. That's like a baseball deck. That's some of the best baseball movies right there. It's, a, it's weird that's that baseball stuff. It's a baseball yeah, it's stuff. weird that it doesn't. Yeah, I guess Kevin Costner cornered the market. If he had gotten <laughs> Kevin Costner in Eight Men Out, he could have had like a hit. What I would say to answer your question, as we take like a small baseball history detour, eighty-five and around, that is when football really starts to crank up a notch. And then by the yeah. mid-eighties, you have Jordan coming, you have Bird coming, you have Magic coming. And the thing that I would also say is the movies that we get in the 80s that are baseball movies are great, but they're also really small kind of centered movies outside of major league, but they're also made by people who grew up with 50s and 60s baseball. They're not like made by people who watch the 80s and 90s baseball, which is incredibly different. You know, Bull Durham <laughs> is not going to be made by someone who was born in 1975. It just couldn't possibly be in any era, I think. It has to be someone who kind of grows up or is at least written by someone who's like a reverence of like the true traditional pastime. And I think Eight Men Out also doesn't work because it's old baseball. It's hard to sell people to be like, yeah, um, no black people on the field, but we have we have bats and stuff. It's still going. It's baseball, kind of. And it was like, no, it's not. I'm interested as to what Phil the Dreams makes because Phil the Dreams is also about old baseball. I mean, it deals with the Black Sox scandal in it, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. but it's a much more sentimental film. It's sentimental dreams. for the history of baseball, whereas Eight Men Out seems kind of like a sort of a... It's not sacrificing that sentimentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's like it's showing you the, like, the dirtiness that did happen, you know. Uh, the dreams made well, $89 million, we... $84 million. Against did what? what? Uh, a $50 million budget, 84.4 return. We've taken a sports and um, like John Cassavetti's detour, and we're about to do another one because John Sales goes on to direct Passion, Passion Fish and The Secret of Roan Inish. Uh, he also does a pass on Jurassic Park 4. <laughs> so we got another zag here. Yes, Spielberg uh, I... <laughs> connection. Yes. What if I told you that John Sales wrote a script for Jurassic Park 4? What if I told you the script involved the mad scientist? What if I told you that in said script, oh, said man. mad scientist creates a velociraptor human hybrid that turns into a walking, talking, killing machine? What if I told you there was a seal-like team of velociraptor humans? And finally, <laughs> what if I told you that you two can read this script online? Wait, you yeah. can read uh, this online? That sounds like Jurassic yeah. World. I read oh, portions no. of this, 
And the minute a human raptor squad was navigating tripwire and running through a narco barracks, taking out enemies left and right, is the same moment I closed that 117 page tab on my computer. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, the Jurassic sequels, I think, smell worse than a pile of Triceratops shit. So this wow, notion yeah. of just completely blowing up the fabric of the, of the Jurassic franchise in such a harsh and absurd manner kind of feels like the only way a sequel to this franchise would work, oddly enough. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those franchises that should have been one movie. Yeah. One movie. Yes. Are yes. they? So I have a question about this. Are the Velociraptor human hire? Do they have guns, or are they just like running around like this, just like slicing necks? They have guns. They have guns. Oh they wield God. weapons. Why do they need guns? They use their bodies as weapons. Like there's part where like one of them runs into somebody and rams them with his head like into the wall and like has an exclamation mark <laughs> at the end of it. It's like I could. It's like what? <laughs> They talk too. They talk. I can't even imagine a dinosaur with a gun. That's crazy. People's imagination. People's imagination. It's like with the when I remember when I saw the trailer for like Dawn of the Planet Apes and I saw those like apes with guns. I was like an ape on a horse with a gun. I never thought I'd see it, and now here we are. But a dinosaur. And a dinosaur. Make that set up to eleven. Dinosaur riding a horse with a gun. And oh then the craziest God. part is you're like, oh, yeah, and then John Sales wrote this. It's like, why did John Sales wrote this? The guy this? who did Lone Star did this. <laughs> yeah. That's so crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. I feel like this idea, again, is like 2023, not like fully out of the realm of like impossibilities <laughs> It would anymore. be made you know, right like, now. It would somebody, be made right now. Somebody could maybe throw some money at that. What's that game that everybody loves? Um, Ark? Like, Fortnite? I mean, like there's some like – yeah, or no, Ark, like the dinosaur game. There's some dinosaurs that like, have lasers and stuff like that on their heads. Like, we're a couple steps away from that being a movie, maybe. But in the 1990s, like early eight or late 80s, this is just like obviously not going to happen. <laughs> but just an absolutely absurd idea. I wonder what Spielberg's reaction was. He just made Schindler's List. So he was like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can go back to uh, <laughs> hybrid like dinosaur human people. I, I'm, I'm making like Saving Private Ryan now. Don't, I'm making my. Don't I'm worry. Making, I'm in a different era of my career now. Uh, Spielberg absolutely punts on this idea. Yeah. Don't worry. Uh, so sales at this point has to do some rewrites. So he's working on films like Mimic and Apollo 13, which he's uncredited for. Pretty cool. Ooh, Not Apollo 13 is one of my favorites. Cool, yeah, That's cool that great. he worked on that. I didn't know that. Yeah, right. Yeah, you. you uh, this is a really part of my. You mentioned Apollo 13. I remember. Uh, do you know what movie I I felt like I felt like John Sales would like is the right stuff that has a lot of like John Sales to me in it that like and the way it also like frames like the Americana of it or another but that's also a random transit I'm sorry go on some some no because now you're making me think about it like a relationship still at the center of its core like a love interest you know like yeah that's what that's and uh I don't know I just popped in my head. But, so yeah, no. you guys are like the sales sales files. You guys like the geniuses on him. Well, is I this... be, I haven't seen all of his films. I've seen Lone Star Heather, and man. Baby It's You. I think you guys should just take the title and run with it and just be so called experts. But is this the lowest point in his career? Do you think? Because he's getting a bunch of ideas shut down. Eight Men Out just didn't work. He's writing Velociraptor human hybrids with guns. You know, like is this like the lowest point he's ever had? The thing is, I think he is the, like people we've talked about on the show, where it's like I am approaching this project with 100% passion and like sincerity, no matter what. Like, even if it is a project that I'm working on for Steven Spielberg, it's going to get the same love and attention and 
inspiration apparently um as you know eight men out or baby it's you or you know the brother from another planet mm-hmm. because lone star is next so we're going to start talking about lone star for people who wanted to hear about lone star um but i was just kind of curious if it's this moment for him where everything else isn't working matawan hit but it wasn't a huge success and that was like a tv movie too i think partly right it wasn't just like a I believe so. A lot of like, we can talk about it now too. A lot of the, his films at this point are like having like a built-in TV deal with them. If you yeah. watch this, you'll see Castle Rock and then under it, the Turner company logo appears. It's because after its release, it was going to be like sent to them for cable and syndication. Um, never really became the cable movie that it, like a, a, its predecessors did like the Fargo's or whatever. And I think that's because a lot of it is just quiet people in a room talking, you know, speaking soulfully about their life experiences. But I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of probably at the point in his career where he's most creatively frustrated because I'm sure he'd rather be doing other things and doing <laughs> uncredited passes on Apollo 13 and Mimic and, you know, getting his Jurassic Park 4 idea shut down, which I don't know. I kind of want to see that now. <laughs> I mean, at this point, anything's possible with how they make those movies. So is Lone Star his attempt to be like, all right, let me restate myself into the conversation and make something I've wanted to for a while. Or is it this feeling of I'm so tired of like the studio system. I'm just going to go make my own thing and be happy with it. Uh, I don't really know, Josh. I don't, I'm not, okay. I don't have the, right, well, I guess we got to get John sales on the show to figure this one out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's your job. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't really know. I don't know. I mean, I imagine it would be just, I mean, I wouldn't want to write about dinosaurs that are like a SWAT team. I know that. That would annoy me. I'd rather write Lone Star. Yes. It was one of my favorite things to do and uh, dig up during this research was find out that script and actually be able to see a PDF file of that. But it's after all this bullshit that Sales starts to seriously work on Lone Star. Lone Star is set in Frontera, a Texas border town shaped by two strong personalities, bullying, violent, racist sheriff, Charlie Wade, who's played by Chris Christopherson, his successor, Sheriff Buddy Deeds, played by Matthew McConaughey, who was said to have booted Wade out of the county one night in 1957. However, Wade was hated by the community and was never seen again. The film is set in the present day, however, when Buddy's son Sam, Chris Cooper, has reluctantly assumed the role of sheriff. He finds his every move eclipsed by the achievements of his father. One day, a skeleton turns up on the outskirts of town, its only relics, a ring and a sheriff's badge from 1957. No one but Sam seems to want to investigate and find out who is the perpetrator. Dun dun dun, which is like I think we've talked about it off mic real quick. I, this this sets this up for a conversation as we finally talk about Lone Star of neo noir thriller um, detective story. I think this movie, before we jump into it, is absolutely not that. It is one hundred percent a John Sayles movie. It's a microscope of this town and the cultural differences and the racial divisions um, and this like. Forlorn Love. It's a really great movie, but it's not kind of what it's marketed as at the time. No, I think it's far more a love story than anything else, quite honestly, after watching it and finishing it. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, it shoots on location in the border towns of Del Rio, Eagle Pass, and Laredo, Texas. Dan, are you got any familiarity with any of these towns? I know all those towns, but I don't live in any of them. Have you ever been to any of them? <laughs> uh, wait, na- na- name, what, what three were they again? El Rio, Eagle Pass, and Laredo. 
No, I don't think I've ever like spent a lot of time in those. The thing about Texas is it's like the size of a country. So like, yeah, you know, you, yeah. I want to go to Houston. It's going to take me like a weekend. I mean, you know, it's like a weekend <laughs> holiday almost. It's so, you know, but yeah, no, I haven't right. been, I'm more up, up north than this movie takes place. But yeah, I mean, I know of all of those places. Like his previous film, City of Hope, Sales wanted to approach this small town from the outside and kind of like pack it with these huge ideas like we just talked about. Um, in his own words, he said, I want a small town where the media would be a small part. If you're in a big city, the national media changes the story. It's like having a monster movie when the army shows up. I wanted to keep things more personal on a small scale. I think he totally achieves this. I think this like, I don't know, you hang out with like eight people, ten people max mm. in this movie. You know, really smart casting as well that yeah, last deals part with three... feels like a shot at et too to be like the army shows up and takes control of the situation Ooh. which is the script that he wrote oh. which then was stolen oh. from him you know like oh I maybe think he must have some resentment i think at some point in his career to be like i had these ideas and now i'm making lone star which it's not to say that he doesn't want to make lone star he's not very passionate about it but he knows he's got to put a half the budget up for the songs exactly yeah. like he knows this movie isn't going to go anywhere else besides probably live and die on like a couple top 10 lists and people being in 20 years be like oh you should go watch lone star it's really good that's a lot of his movies unfortunately yeah yeah but you know it they find their audience and like you know not every movie has to be star wars or what like sometimes it's it's like it's fine like it was a smaller movie and the people that know it love it you know and that's yeah and it, and it it's kind of a small quiet personal movie so you know it makes sense that it would be kind of like a culty kind of like small amount of people like the the beloved or whatever sure yeah. uh yeah lone star deals with three central storylines otis and delmore Payne's strained father-son relationship is exhumed when Delmore, an army colonel who has been assigned to Frontier's local base, begins to try to reconcile with his father. Sam's deeds as he uncovers and confronts his father's and Frontier's past. In Pilar, she navigates being a single mother, her heritage, and her voice in a town that does not want to hear her. These three kind of interweave as the film progresses and uh, crash into each other over decades spanning of time. Like I said, much of the $4.5 million budget went to its soundtrack, a piece that was integral to sales. He originally had like over 30 songs, he said in an interview that I was listening to. Yeah. Uh, but he gets most of his music choices and the film done on time and on budget, something that I think is a tribute to his ability and his sage like wisdom as a storyteller and a visual filmmaker at this point, or visual storyteller. Um, but he uses producer-like pragmatism to get the job done, which is something that I think some of the other people on this podcast, like we talked about, maybe not as much. But like, yeah, just like you can feel every decision is so intentional in this movie. Mm -hmm. He feels like a director that, and this is why I asked the question about like, is Lone Star the point in his career where he tries to reclaim things? Because this feels like a script he wrote 30 years ago and that he's been working on pretty much ever since to me. Because it feels very lived in. It feels very much like a play. And the level of detail and like attention that is given to every single character, I feel like it has to start way, way further back than just the 1990s for me. And also not being from Texas, like yeah. there's, there had to be like an element of like research and like learning about the culture that you're going to portray in the specifically like the like Tex-Mex, the like border town, Mexico, yeah. and where they collide and and come together like that that had to like take some time i imagine it's a subculture of 
text is wholly unique to its own. Yeah, that like it mm-hmm. really requires if you're going to like do a film like this, extensive research and passion and like ambition to want to tell this story. But I think it's time we get into some of the people who helped bring this film to life. Josh, you got some casting stuff for us this week. I do have some casting stuff because a certain actor who we'll get to is in this movie. And, you know, he's my guy, Maddie McConaughey. We'll get to him later. But uh, he kind of goes to Cooper pretty early on because they reteamed with Madawan. Um, but I think it's also point or fair to point out like this isn't a nepotism hire for people who don't know. Like Chris Cooper by the time isn't like a giant star, but just because he's John Sale's friend doesn't mean he just got the job. Because he Chris falls Cooper is John Sale's son. <laughs> yeah. He's a nepo baby, and that's how he got the role. Uh, you know that that like variety or vanity fair cover with like all the nepo babies? It'd be great if Chris it's like, Cooper is right there. <laughs> Jack Quaid, Maya Hoff, 80-year-old Chris Cooper just being like... Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, into his like 60s or 70s. Eight, I don't know how old he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, Chris Cooper is still working at the time. He's got, like, miniseries roles with, like, Lonesome Dove, Bed of Wise, and he's got, like, indies called, like, Thousand Pieces of Gold. But, but his biggest role is something called uh, Terry the Torch Edwards and Money Train. I don't know if anyone's seen Money Train. It's like... It's Woody Harrelson. I think I've seen that. And it's I I've heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's, what, it's when they're trying to make yeah, it's when they're like Woody's the Woody's the sidekick in all the action movies or like the the buddy comedies. That's like yeah. his era of like that too. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've never the seen pre- it, but the premise is basically like they're foster brothers and they're gonna they gotta take down this train for some reason because it sounds horrendous. Yeah, take it down. Wesley Snipes yeah. and Jennifer Lopez are in it as well. <laughs> It's Dang, an incredibly like banger. Yeah, like oh, late man. 80s. Someone just did a line of Coke and they're like, uh, Woody, Jennifer Lopez, uh, uh, Wesley Snipes. That's the movie. Here we go. Done. Done. Money, money train. A thousand pieces, whatever. A bunch of like Sopranos <laughs> background actors are in this movie too. <laughs> <laughs> Which tells you a lot. And Chris Cooper's Hank from these... Breaking Bad, isn't it? Yeah, it's all these like people that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's pretty. Ada Tutorial. Yeah, all these people. Yeah, Prestige fun. TV is built on the back of Money Train, apparently. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and Chris Cooper is a part of this movie because he plays a psychotic like pyromaniac, apparently. Um, and on the surface, it's kind of a nothing part. This movie, as we've kind of buried it before, is pretty much schlock. But it does have a $68 million budget, which is insane. And it does bring back $77 million at the box office return. So, like, in other words, Chris Cooper at this point in his career... He has found his niche, mostly like Westerns, which I think is a role that absolutely fits him and the Western part of Lone Star, something we'll get into later. Um, but Cooper's also finding his foot in like the commercial world. And I think it makes him a sensible choice for sales, the script, and the few producers who kind of need to convince him. Um, and Nick, I think you found a quote about John Sales talking with like repeat customers and this idea of when you look at his filmography, when we talk about who he chose for these roles, I think most of our, our sentences will start with like, yeah, he worked with them earlier on a different movie. Yeah. But one big part of the casting you have failed to mention mm-hmm. is that a large portion of the cast are Texans. Mm. And it is very hard to portray a Texan if you're not a native Texan. It's just it's almost impossible, you know, to get the accent down. It's like it takes high class actors. And yeah. Chris Cooper. Uh, his parents from were from Texas. His parents yeah. were from Texas. And he lived in Houston briefly as a child. Uh, Chris Christopherson, one of the great, all-time great country artists of all time. He's from Texas. And, of course, Matty McConaughey. Mm. 
So I, I guess the question for you, Tanner, as a Texan, do you feel that yes. Chris Cooper gets it right? Chris Cooper totally feels Texan in this movie. Absolutely. He gets it 100% right. I love him in this movie. He just the sort of the, it's such a laid back performance. Mm. It's such a like, it reminds me, I don't know if either of you have seen this. Have you ever, either of you seen the movie The Chase with Marlon Brando? No. In the late 60s, it's got a young Robert Redford, young Robert Duvall, but it's about this sheriff of this small town uh, who's just uh, roaming from town to town, not in the town, roaming from person to person, and it's about sort of the town and how they're reacting to Robert Redford coming back because he was like a criminal or whatever. But, and Brando plays the sheriff, and it's such a like laid back, it reminds me of that film, the way that he just... Chris Cooper is just sort of taking us through it, through everything. And he's kind of just, and I, and he has so, because uh, everything also, the way it deals with like the politics of it too, the mayor and the, all these people who want him to do this or do that or do that. And he's so just like, he has that, that like, he has so many great like little moments of just a line, just a throwaway line. And then he moves on his way. Like just, not that he doesn't care about anything, but he's just so, laid back about it and i and i really love that aspect of he's not too angry or too into any of everybody else is so worked up and passionate about all of these things and he's just kind of like well let's just figure out what the truth is he's he's not doing any business i mean i could watch like 30 more minutes of chris cooper just like crouched down (laughs) holding a pebble in the middle of the desert you know looking Mm -hmm. at a skull trying to figure out what happened give me all those shots or him just contemplating life like looking out over a bridge but yes whenever he does speak it is with an intent and purpose like one of my favorite lines is when like they're coming at him and like he's so aware of his name that he's just like yeah well you got that position based off of my name like don't forget somebody with in their name yeah Yeah, exactly so like he's very cognizant of it there's another great line with uh tony plana later when he's like uh when he asks him he goes hey what do you think you think we need a new jail and he's like, well, I mean, that's a complicated thing. And he's like, you'll make a great <laughs> You'll be a sheriff. great sheriff. Like, yeah. yeah, like, uh, <laughs> great. And I just love how he's so, uh, like, he hates being sheriff because he's just like, if a normal person had this political job or they're like, why? No, like, we don't need a jail. Like, I don't, what's, you know, do we're going to appease? So, like, he doesn't play any of the games. And that's so fascinating to me that he does that. And he's so, like, annoyed by all of the games. And just like, all right, whatever. You know, I, I love how he plays all of that. Chris Cooper is one of our greatest, like, underrated, contemplative, soulful, absolutely okay. professional actors that we have going. I, I mean, I don't really movie. care for this movie anymore as much. American Beauty, he's marvelous in. Mm. He's great, great in adaptation. Adaptation, I mean. that's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say. Probably my favorite Chris Cooper role. He's great in this. I mean, just keep going. You could go down the list. I mean, he's just amazing. He's like he's I, a great like character actor. Like anytime he pops up yeah. in something, I'm so happy to see him. I think mm-hmm. this is an incredibly stripped down role for him to play too, because there's no like gusto, there's no machismo to this role. He's an incredibly like the trope that you see in a lot of modern westerns now of the old sheriff that just doesn't care anymore or is past the point of caring. And Chris Cooper's a guy who can't ham it up. <laughs> but this movie makes him play incredibly str- restrained and like laconic. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a great job if you can buy that feeling of like, well, he's just in this town he doesn't want to be in. But when they peel back the layers of his character and you start to see that he's this way because like he's been torn apart from the woman he feels he was supposed to be with since he's 15, that's when I think the true genius of his performance kind of comes out. 
there's not a moment in this movie where he like probably goes over a five or a four as no. far as anger. Like the angriest he gets is like when somebody's like, your your father, Buddy Deeds, had the greatest sense of justice ever. He's like, yeah, and my mom was a saint. Like that's <laughs> yeah. probably the, his most angry, you know? So it's great. Contemplative, just meditating all these crazy things and these twists and turns and like what i also love about this movie is like it really isn't concerned about the pacing like there's not really a lot known about any of like characters besides the history that we get told it's very its intentions are pure when it's like delivering its information like it's it's parceled out and i really enjoy that because a, a hollywood film you know would open with the entire buddy deed storyline and then we would go back to yeah you know, jump ahead to Sam and like what's going on in the current day, whereas this kind of just like lets it all flow out naturally. And what I think also helps the sort of the vibe and like the way the movie moves is the camera work too. The camera always feels like it's just sort of like drifting in scene to scene, and I love the way how it sort of transitions to the flashbacks. How yes. it like it 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 because it. The way it does it, it makes it feel like the history is still so there. Like we're still in the same room, you know, we're mm-hmm. still in the same town and that same everything, like, cause it just drifts to like the other side of the room and we're in a different time and how it does that is so, I've never seen a film do it quite like that. I was, that was one of the things that struck me the first time I saw it. I was like, I love how it, how it just drifts through time and through every, every scene is just sort of drifting. I love that. I thought it was it was marvelous too. The the second time I watched it, I did feel like it was kind of maybe a little reliant at times on. It. I mean, but I think also it's speaking to the story, like you said. It we're still in the same exact issues. We're still in these same exact places. You know, where he's almost trapped in time. He's going back to his childhood, the same town he grew up in. So mm-hmm. I I do agree with you. It's a great choice. Um, and I I haven't seen that before. I think it's really smart too on sales part because not having the budget for probably production design and art decorations to be able to like go back in time on these really new settings and repaint the building and do all these exteriors. It's really smart storytelling to just use the same location but be able to like drift and use your camera to tell the story that we're going to a different time period. Mm-hmm. And the way you guys talk about the camera is also the way he uses Chris Cooper in this movie. Chris yeah. Cooper just comes in and out of scenes and like he's drifting. He's drifting. he just shows up. Absolutely. Like he'll be in one scene and then two more scenes will pass by. The Del Mar story will be going on. And it's funny that they don't ever interact. That probably the two male leads of this movie, which are uh Sam or Morton, Joe Morton and, and Chris Cooper never interact. But the way that it'll go from like Del Mar four scenes later, and then Chris Cooper just shows up somewhere randomly or is just driving mm-hmm. around, and that's exactly how they utilize him as a character. Um, and he's just such a drifter in this movie that's so perfect. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys as we're talking about like, his character is like, why did this guy become a cop if he hates his dad so much? I, well, I think that that is, I don't know if that's an easily answerable question, but I think it's the, the idea of like, there is an element of him and his father's relationship mm. in that to everyone he, his father has such a, a, a respected reputation and everybody he's says he's great. Yeah. He's become, yeah, like a mythic sort of like, like a superhero almost, you know, like even the mayor says, you know, I, I've been asked what is a true text and I tell him to come on down to wherever the town was called and look <laughs> at buddy deeds or whatever. Uh, there's, he just, um, the idea of then 
having to be in his footsteps as well, be in his sort of shadow. And there's an element too, because we talk about how he, he's kind of laid back. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's interesting is there's an element of like, he wants his father to be guilty as well. Yeah. Like, but does he want his father to be guilty because he wants to find the truth? Or is it because he wants to knock his dad down a peg so that he's easier to, to live up to? Like, cause he doesn't see his dad in that way. Cause he had to live with him as like a parent, you know? So, you know, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of like father son stuff there, you know, like the complicated relationships of a father and a son who are very similar, but very different at the same time. And that's what struck me that this time watching it was how the investigation, how much more it felt that he was driving it. Like, like he like wanted to find out that his dad did it just to have something. He is the, he's the only one throughout the film who wants to find out yes. about mm-hmm. the murder. Everybody else is openly either making a joke or trying to downplay the severity of what happened the entire time. Like, mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie is Clifton James, uh, probably known for like like Cool Hand Luke or working in some of the early 007 movies, stuff like that. Um, when he's on the boat scene and he's talking about the fish and he's like, you know, I get all this gear. I come out here every single day and what, just to bother some fish that's minding its own business, you know, like it doesn't really seem like it's hardly worth the effort. I just think that like, mm-hmm. that's just a great, beautiful moment in the movie that kind of summarizes exactly what you're saying of like, he's always pushing the investigation forward. And it's almost in the sense of like what you're saying, but I also wonder if it's in a sense of like, Sam feels, and it's also kind of stated when he's like, I'm thinking about going to the other side. And he says, Republican. And he's like, no. <laughs> and then he says, I'm going down to Mexico. But like, it's almost like insinuated to me. It's like, hey, I, with this new kind of found hope or like newfound power and position, maybe I can somehow correct the wrongs that I know my father committed for this town and these people in some kind of way. Mm hmm. Well, the other part of it, I think during the investigation is he's the only one to actually accuse Buddy of doing the murder. Everyone else is pretty laid back and is like, well, something happened to Charlie Wade. We don't really know. But Cooper's yeah, but always he like, sucks, so who cares? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Everyone's cool enough to just let it be. Whereas Sam is always like, no, my dad killed him. Tell me he killed him. I want to know that he killed him. But I also mm-hmm. think part of him wants to be a cop or chooses to be the sheriff of this town not just because of Polar, which we'll get to later, but because part of him wants to be his dad, I think, deep down. I mean, that's every father and son mm. relationship is I want to be who my dad was and maybe not the myth that my father was, but be the person I knew him to be um, of like just a standard cop. And I think he wants to be close to home in a way that is also rationalized by his divorce. You know, when you go through an event like that, the way that we know Sam does, you want to go back to the familiar. You want to go to what's comfortable. And going back to this small town where you know there's no problems, really, and just doing what your father kind of built for you, it's mm-hmm. easy. Because And he knows it, too. It's, it's a work that he, he yeah. even though he wasn't himself, he grew up with a father being sheriff. So he, it's a world he knows. I, just, I think it's interesting how, because what I like about the, uh, Chris Cooper's character is he really is like a good cop. Like, yeah. he doesn't have any prejudices in, in any way. And he seems to like, like the idea of, if you were, you know, a sheriff and their, your father might have committed a horrible murder or whatever, ideally you want someone who can put aside that that's their father and can go, if my dad did it, my dad did it, and he, he's, you know, then he, that needs to be out there. And I think it's interesting because it's played like that, but as it goes on, it's, you start to go like, oh, wait, is it that he's 
because he is a good cop, but is that the reason? Is it because he is, or is it because he wants to find a flaw in his father? Just one little yeah. flaw that he can find. And a little, little hole in the armor, yeah. 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 On that note, it's time to talk about McConaughey. My guy, my trusted, my trusted buddy Deeds. Give him my buddy Seed. Um, I I went back to Green Lights. <laughs> oh, I don't know if anyone book? remembers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't know if anyone know the book. <laughs> yeah, everyone from the early episodes will remember that. Uh, I got the book Green Lights written by Matthew McConaughey as a birthday present, and I would open every show for a while with like a poem that Matthew McConaughey wrote. And eventually, I stopped because it was like these are you know cheesy and like really whatever they're kind of preachy you mean well sure yeah yeah we were all mandatory we all had to read the book when it came out in texas it became like (laughs) part of uh just living here i mean he might become a senator for you so you kind of had to get used to it and like really know him inside and out yeah in his like university of texas orange (laughs) suit with a cowboy hat (laughs) that is how you know the governor of texas should look he should look like that with a cowboy hat and a UT orange, <laughs> making you read his book. I so I went back to that book, Green Lights, uh, for this episode, and I reread parts of it. And let me tell you, not as just about as bad as the first time I read it. Very, you know. Oh wow! Very McConaughey. I but, do not. The views and opinions expressed by Josh do not represent yeah. mine at all. I love. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble with your fellow people. You know, they might come after you if they think you're associating or agreeing with me. So I just want to make it clear: Tanner does not agree. He loves Green Lights. He's got a poster behind him. I, I also no do not condone on. these remarks either. Okay, well, I exactly. guess I'll be on my own on the Green Lights I, Island. I think Matthew McConaughey's never done anything wrong. I just want to point that out there. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that one either. But what I'm getting at here is like when I was reading the book, uh, parts of it, I was getting like the context of where he is for Lone Star. And he's kind of in this weird place a lot of young actors find themselves in. Like he'd aced his role in Days Confused. He played a small part in a big production like Angels in the Outfield. He climbed the ladder with a bigger role in Boys on the Side which is a $21 million budget movie with Whoopi Goldberg, Mary Louise Parker, and then like a rising star in Drew Barrymore. And like McConaughey's the fourth lead in that movie. He makes $150,000 in his paycheck. You know, like that's the state of McConaughey at this point. So he's kind of riding this wave of, oh, I'm achieving it. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm getting to the Hollywood system. But then after Boys on the Side, he just starts living in Malibu. And then he does the funny thing, which is he starts taking acting classes for the first time in his life. He's done all of this in his career up to the point without knowing what he's technically supposed to do, um, which might explain some of the choices of Texas Chainsaw, which we riffed about on that episode, um, which are very questionable <laughs> to think that that man doesn't know what he was doing. Um, that's a talk for another day. Um, and the other part of it is that after Boys on the Side, McConaughey hadn't booked a role for six months. And I was hoping as I was rereading Green Lights, like, okay. Here comes the Lone Star section. He's going to talk about what drew him to the role, why he likes John Sayles, what he thinks Buddy Deeds is like. He doesn't mention the movie. He has like one passing sentence about it, and I was irate to read. Yeah, I, I got some like McConaughey stuff for, for right okay. now too, because like I think he's really good in this movie. Like I, I genuinely think it's probably the first performance that you look at from him and you're like – Oh, wow. This one's like one that's memorable. You should go back and see this movie if you haven't seen Mm -hmm. it. He's great, but I want like four or five more scenes with him. I know that it's intentional that he's not there that much, but I think he's amazing in it. 
Um, and he's maybe the like most handsome guy in Hollywood at this point for his young generation of guys coming up. And it seems like this is the first time at this point, nobody else knows it, but in this role, it feels like for the first time he kind of knows it a little bit mm. and he's using it to his like advantage. He knows he's king shit. I feel like that makes it a little bit more frustrating that he's like his absence in this. But it, it almost like works perfectly for, like he's such perfect casting as his character. Because he almost looks like he looks and sounds like the idealized Texan. Yeah, like he's got the the voice is perfect. He's got the look. He like he looks great and he's got this power. And the fact that he's kind of briefly in it almost adds to like that feeling of like we wish Buddy Deeds was still here a little bit. You know, like there is that like you know when he was here things were different a little bit that certain people have, and that kind of plays into it almost. Into a degree that that's a fair point yeah and then like also i think if maybe like this and again it's just me selfishly loving him and wanting him in it like more yeah um yeah and like uh i think we'll talk about it here in a couple minutes like what i think his best scene is but like the other thing that you're talking about is like the overexposure of him if you do have more Mm. scenes i think begins to chip away that like mythology of buddy deeds like you're talking about like if he's in it for five more scenes like it probably gives away too much of the character for it to still have that like weight to it that's what i was going to say is that his lack of presence makes him feel untouchable in a way that you understand how sam must feel because the only thing we really see of mcconaughey besides i think maybe the theater scene are like him doing like really noble cool looking things of of him like standing up to Charlie Wade in a public place and making threats and the way that they talk about him, it's like, man, he's so cool. And then by seeing only that, you know what Sam must feel like growing up where everyone's like, man, your dad's the coolest guy. What a nice guy. He's a real paragon of justice and all that stuff. And the fact that he's coming off of after Chris Christopherson. So like yes. the fa- just that, like, just the fact that he's like not racist makes him immediately <laughs> significantly the best sheriff they've ever had. <laughs> Like, yeah. just like that, he's the best better. Yeah. Like, the bar is yeah. on the ground. So yeah. it, it, it adds even more to him. A murdering I, sheriff, yeah. I, I would agree, though, but, like, he does bring something to this role of just, like, man, what a cool guy. Like, he really is utilized in the perfect way, and I really want to credit John Sales for, like, his use of McConaughey to have him be so infrequent and to cast this guy who just looks so hot and so cool as, like, the perfect representation of what a Buddy Deeds would be. Most handsome Texan of all time. The best scene is when he takes the car keys away and, like, busts them at the at the drive-in theater. Like, I think that's, like, that to me is, like, the first time in his career, personally. Like, I've... I've <laughs> Texas yeah. Chainsaw aside, I think we've both seen a lot of, like, the early work McConaughey, probably all three of us. Like, I've seen, like, almost every movie he's been in, I feel like. But, like... yeah. Of all the early work, I feel like this is the first time where, like, the the anger and the menace and also, like, the dramatic weight, like, finally comes through. It's not just necessarily, like, yeah, I hop on set with Richard Linklater and he throws me some lines and I, like, say some great dialogue. Well, it's also not I'm running around. (laughs) And it's not him running around in a horror set just being like... You mind if I just make some weird noises and and <laughs> gotta <laughs> drop one in right now. It has to be dropped in. <laughs> yeah. So Tanner, you have you haven't seen that movie, right? You still haven't that seen Texas Chainsaw? It. No, I've seen yeah, the first okay. two Texas Chainsaw movies in that. You're missing out. I've been waiting three years for you to watch it and give me your text reaction. Wait, which one, which one is that? Which one is it? How many are in between that one from this? 
which this number is, is that? This is, I think, the third three one. or four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the third it's one? Yeah. Okay, then it's the next it's one. The next I guess. generation, I watch. Tanner. It's the next, next generation. A year from now, when it's October, and I feel like okay. wasting my time watching a okay. bad horror movie, I'll Maybe watch Maybe we'll the... have you on for, like, the re- Chainsaw oh Massacre. God. I don't know. But anyways. I can't talk bad about McConaughey. That's like... <laughs> oh, you won't have to. Law. He's amazing. You're, he's to actually okay to do it. Oh, yeah, he's okay, okay in the movie. But there's this moment where the female main character, played by Renee Zellweger, is running out of also house. Also Texan. Also Texan. Runs out of the house, and she gets in a car, and she backs the car up like towards the house because she's trying to get away. <laughs> and you see Matthew McConaughey on the roof. And he jumps from yeah. the roof onto the car. And as he's jumping, Tanner, he goes, Boop. It's the strangest noise you'll ever hear in any movie ever by a really talented actor. Because he could have been like, I'm going to get you, or just say nothing, just collapse on the roof of the car and be like, I got you now. But he intentionally goes, Boop. See, he's playing like a weird, like <laughs> one of the weird, like Leatherface yeah. guys. Oh, like, he's Leatherface's brother. He's in the weird. Movie. Yeah, yeah. Just the handsomest Leatherface kid, I guess. It's just like it's a lot of all questions. of them are monsters, and then one of them was Matthew McConaughey. Yes. Uh, so so weird. go watch that movie. But what I'm getting right. at here is like, I think it's really impressive that he's made this transformation from Texas Chainsaw, from Days and Confused, all the way around to like playing a, a pretty layered character in this because it's it's a challenge for him. I feel for him to play a paragon. You know, he has to play a myth as this 20-something-year-old actor that doesn't have that many credits to his name. Do you know he has such a presence in this? And I, when I was watching this time, when that first scene, when we first see him in that cowboy hat, sort of leaning up in that, leaning in that chair, and the way so that handsome. he, and the way that he, like, looks at Chris Christopherson, he's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. It reminded me of Paul Newman and HUD. Mm. Have you seen HUD? Mm. Paul Newman and HUD, that's yeah. a very complicated character. A very complicated character. It's and I watched an interview with um, Matthew McConaughey years ago where he said that like Hud was like his like on the waterfront or East of Eden. That was the movie that made him go like, oh, acting. Like I might want to do like that's a performance. Like, Paul Newman was his Brando, his James Dean, and I feel like I could feel it in that mm -hmm. moment. I have a Greenlights yes. trivia fact for you guys because again, rereading it this week paid off some dividends. He named his dog Tanner. Mrs. Hud? Hud. Yeah, he did. Yeah, He's a man after your if own you heart. Seen Hud, if you haven't seen Hud, that's a great film. Great performance that's a really from good Paul Newman. One of Paul Newman's best performances. Yeah. And not one that probably people like shout out firsthand, you know? For him. No, yeah. It's, it's a, a. Who directed that? That's not. Uh, Steven. I don't know. We can't he, fall into the Hud. Oh, <laughs> we can't do a Hud Yeah. <laughs> um, but like speaking to his like complicated role. As much as they built him up in this movie, do you guys think Buddy's actually a good dad at all to Sam or like anyone? I think it's one of those classic things where like, I'm sure we all have complex relationships with our parents where it's just like, I tried the best that I could. And I feel that in the, in the relationship, you don't get a lot of it, which is kind of like, Again, one of my frustrations with the movie is like I do think it does it does need one more scene of just like young Sam and Buddy together, like having some maybe, kind of interaction. Maybe one like connection that isn't like hostile, like isn't them like Harsh. against each other. A, a learning lesson, yeah, yeah, yeah. It strikes me that because of Buddy's, 
uh, reputation in the town, Sam actively rebelled as a child, like in every way he could, which mm-hmm. only strains the relationship between the two of them to the point that, like, we never get a mention that he came back for the funeral, do we? Or is there a line that says that Sam came back for the funeral? It's insinuated to me that, like, he, he, Buddy's been gone for a little bit of time. Yeah. Like, not necessarily for years and years, but he's, he's passed on. So, like, the significance of, like, his funeral and service has kind of waned. It's not really talked about. It's more about, like, the reassertion of him being a historical figure in Frontera mm-hmm. that's, like, causing the conflict. I also yeah. wonder, like, did Buddy love Sam? Cause I don't know, like, because it comes off in this so cold way or we can I think only really infer, but... But it's, it's also, I think, it's an element of, like, men of the time, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's going to be, he's not going to be, like, like, and he's like a sheriff. He's like a man's man, you know, like, so I, I, I imagine he probably, I'm sure he loved Sam. I mean, he seems like he was a good, you see, because uh, in the end, how they, um, with, um, his daughter character, like, mm-hmm. even then, like, there were these things he was helping behind, like, he had, he cared in his way, I think. So, it, I, I think he definitely cared about, so I think yeah. he definitely, like, loved his son, but he, it was probably, like, he was probably a hard dad to have at the same time, you know? At least that's how I, think, I interpreted it. I think there's another thing that we're just not talking about, and to kind of, like, just fully spoil the movie, like, Pilar and Sam are related, right? Like in, in in some fashion they are related, which complicates that relationship totally at the end and leaves you really kind of like on a haunting note. So he is a father who maybe while gruff and you know very conservative and and probably an, a hard ass has good intentions for his son probably in the long run. Mm-hmm. I feel to me that there's a sorrow to the end of this movie, not just because of the twist, but because when Sam finds out that Buddy took care of uh, Mercedes and Pilar financially, I think part of him must realize, like, oh, no, my dad cared about both of us and that he was doing this to try to protect the both of us, you know, even though we we never knew that. And the sorrow comes to the fact that I think if Sam could go back to his younger self and say to him, like, hey, man, don't be so rebellious on your to your dad. Don't have this complicated relationship with him. There's a way the two of them could have had a really special relationship. Yeah, like there's a big reason why he doesn't keep yeah. on hanging out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. but, but if he hadn't shut him out, and I think vice versa, if McConaughey had just said to him, hey, that's your sister, dude, like maybe leave that one be, there's a way that I get this movie comes across that there could have been like a really special bond between the two of them that would have made them just like happier people. But because of the walls that are so built up and thick, it never would have happened. That's what the movie's about, though. It's about the secrets. It's about the complicated nature of these relationships. It's about the fathers and their sons and their mothers and their daughters. It's about these weird, complex relationships. You not telling me this made me do this, which made us do this, and we don't have this relationship because of this secret. And because it's so, it's so real life. That's what I loved about this movie. Is it's such an honest sort of thing? Because it's like the characters that aren't good or bad, like they have these complicated feelings like um you even have um the woman uh, uh who is um who uh buddy had the affair with mercedes yeah mercedes. yeah mercedes sorry uh she she's an immigrant from mexico show her 
crossing the border on came here illegally. And then what is she doing later in the movie? She's calling border patrol and people she sees do that. That's a complicated person right there. Very complicated. All of yes. that kind of stuff. Like, and the, uh, yeah, it's just, that's what is so great about it. And even like the ending, talk about the ending. What was so interesting to me about the ending is there's this reveal of that they're related. And the first thing she says is, I can't have children. Uh-huh. There were complicated with that. Like, from the moment it's revealed, it's trying to bargain with it. It's trying to be like, well, it doesn't, like, I thought that was so interesting, too. Like, that was so honest. Like, that's, it's a weird thing. It's very weird, this scenario. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly weird. But there's something so honest about her, like, not really, like, it was, that went away, and then it was like, I can't have kids, so like, to make it okay. Like, I, I thought that was so interesting. It's so sort of powerful. Like, that was so honest. Yes, and this movie is doing it, you know, so so well done through the craft as well, where it's just like, I think one of my favorite edits in the movie is how we're introduced to the Delmore and Otis storyline of how we get Sam and Buddy in that kind of like flashback and kind of grasp that storyline. And then it's immediately into Delmore, this colonel who's one of my favorite lines in this is that guy could crack walnuts with his asshole. Just kind of a funny <laughs> line when they're talking about how upright he is. You know, we're introduced to the same kind of character. It's just these... um traits of masculinity that get passed down from generation to generation found really interesting and how the film is doing that through its editing as well and sort of the the there's something interesting about like buddy and sam and then you look at otis and his son and dell and they they are like opposites yeah and also very similar like and like the like the scene where his like son uh his grandson is visiting uh and looking at the pictures and he's saying like you know Black people, we were with the, uh, the Native Americans. We were bounty hunters. We were doing all these great things. Like, tech, we are as a part of Texas culture as anybody else, as the white guys, as Mexicans, as everybody. And also, like, the way that he's so sort of laid back and chill. He runs a bar and he does the card games in the back. And then his son is a military guy. He's very yeah. strict. He's, th- <laughs> he's this guy. But there's also an element, too, of when he has that conversation with the, the young girl who gets in trouble with drugs. Where yeah. he's like, when, and they're talking about like, you know, what is it like for a person who maybe doesn't always feel welcomed as an American to then serve America, like to serve the country too. Like that like racial thing too. Like, so he has a little bit of his father in him still, even as how different he is. I just love how it plays with, and then like Mercedes and her daughter, all that, it is the relationships are what's so rich about this movie. It's the relationships in, that everybody has with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, generations drive so much of this plot because to circle back to the buddy stuff and how th- this crazy twist at the end feels so much worse is because buddy couldn't come out and say, I had an affair in the secret child because that would ruin his entire reputation in that time frame. It would because ruin his myth is, and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. It would ruin his marriage. It would ruin his relationship with his son and ev- it is everything. Too. And that's mm-hmm. and that's not to be like, well, I mean, let, let Buddy have some fun, you know. Let's have some <laughs> yeah, secret yeah. kids going around. But right. the 1950s were such a repressed time. That's the era I presume this kind of is 1950s, 1960s, 50, 60s, yeah, around there. Yeah, it's such a repressed time that any sin like that, especially in rural Texas, is going to be viewed as a death nail. But it's so, also interesting mm-hmm. because it's also portrayed a little bit as like some people did know as well, yeah, and it was just kind of like, but no he's a good secret. Sheriff. You know, he's a good sheriff, though. Like, he, you know, he lets us do this. So, you know, uh, 
But yeah. uh, one thing I loved about that, because we're talking about the history and everything, it also, the way, it, the same thing it does with its characters, it also does with Texas. Like, it's about mm. Texas's history. It's about Texas's culture. And, like, in that final scene where she says, like, I can't have kids, one of the final lines is, why don't we forget everything, forget the Alamo. And there's also, earlier in the film, when they're talking with the, the, the parents are talking with the teachers about what they're teaching about Texas history, and you get the, you get, see the both sides of it or whatever, and it, it's just so fascinating. Like, oh, we've I, got I was, stuff on that. Yeah, it, it, I just thought it was so, it's so well how it weaves everything. It weaves the people's history, the state's history, everything so perfectly. Like, it, it's just so perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One actress I think uh, we've kind of danced around is Elizabeth Pena, who's just magnificent in this movie. So good. Like Chris so Cooper, good. she's kind of someone who paid her dues. She got a start in 1979 with uh, with TV uh, and kind of works continuously almost throughout her entire career from then on. She really finds her footing. Also, like Chris Cooper, working with John Sayles. She's a co-lead uh, in his legal drama, Shannon's Deal with NBC. She'd done that work in Jacob's Ladder, where she's a co-lead. And that's kind of where her career is peaking. She's um, in La Bamba, the Richie Valens movie. She, she's, she's in The Incredibles. She is. She does a lot of voice yeah. work later in her career. Um, but she's kind of on this slow rise, which leads to Lone Star. And I, I think this is one of the, the worst pre-production part or post-production parts of this. She's so good in this movie. And her career feels like it's building to this. And then this is probably the peak of her of her like real capabilities. She's like a player. She's like in a lot of stuff. Like you, yeah. you know, Tanner said, The Incredibles and a lot of things later on. She's in, I think, the Justice League movie as well. Um, but yeah, but not Justice somebody. God, <laughs> I can't remember. But like, she's, she's, yeah, she unfortunately like passed away really early at the age of fifty-five. Oh, did? I didn't even yeah, know that. She had, kind of a, had a complex life and obviously some issues so just kind of a sad person that we lost way too soon she won the 1996 like independent spirit award for best supporting actress for this Mm -hmm. like she's amazing in this i think she's a character i personally connect with the most in this like reckoning with like her own past her like lineage of her family and her history this complicated relationship with somebody who's so different from her i've I've really like enjoyed that character the most i think and almost feels like the through line that connects all the stories together Mm. In a very masculine dominated movie. Yeah, she all she is kind of like uh there's like I don't know if I want to say like she's the soul of the movie, but there is something about it where she like she feels like the heart of it. She feels there's something about yeah. her too. And also her and her her with her son. Um uh she has a com- complicated relationship with her son and uh like she's a single mother who, you know, recently her husband's died and she's having to deal with being a teacher, deal with these kids, deal with the emotions of Chris Cooper coming back. Like, all of that is so... Her son uh, acting out or whatever, getting in trouble, going to jail, whatever. Like, it's so... She handles it so well. She has such a, a burden, like, you know, on her shoulders. And she carries it so well. She has two of my favorite line readings in this entire movie. It's like when her daughter's like, it's just stupid to be in love at 14 years old. It's not impossible. And she sees Chris Cooper walking down the street. She's just like, no, it's not. You know, just like (laughs) such a great line read of someone who you buy that relationship. You feel the time part that those two had. And maybe there's still a spark there, some kind of connection, some kind of like passion. Yeah. Marvelous performance in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, she doesn't, she gets a lot to do. 
but it's nothing flashy. Very much like Chris Cooper. No one gets a lot of flashy stuff to do in this movie besides probably McConaughey and Chris Christopherson, um, who we'll get to soon. But like everyone just nails their part in this movie and buys into this vibe of to go back to the Manchester by the Sea comparison. They all feel so lived in this town that like you can buy the fact they've all lived there for 45 years. And they're all kind of like haunted by it too. Like they yeah. all have something that's sort of haunting them. It's kind of like um uh, not to like I'm not changing the subject, but like have no, you seen the last picture show? Peter Bogdanovich's? Yeah. That's also a movie like that. It's about this town. It's about these people and their history and the young people, the old people, and how the town and and their history kind of haunts them as well. I love that aspect of it. The town in this film is as much a character as any of the cast is, which is really mm-hmm. just a smart decision. Rounding out the cast, though, Chris Christopherson, Charlie Wade, uh, a legendary scumbag in this movie. I don't know if I've oh, seen a bigger asshole in movies in a while. I love Chris Christopherson in this movie. <laughs> Chris Christopherson is an underrated actor. He's one of the greatest country singers of all time. One of the greatest. So he's an underrated writers. talent. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he he wrote like I mean, Sunday morning coming down. He wrote a lot of stuff that all of like that seventies era of country music. Like everybody covered his his music from Johnny Cash to Dolly Parton to Waylon and Willie and all of them. And he also transitioned to acting like really well. Like he's in Alice doesn't live here anymore. Martin yeah. Scorsese's like early <laughs> film. He he's he's done so many. He's in a star the one of the Stars Born remakes with Barbara Streisand. He's such an interesting like. Like, he really, like, you didn't think he had it in him, you know, to do, like, a character like this. And he's playing such a ugly, despicable guy who's just, <laughs> who's just so, like, it, but he has the voice for it. He has the face for it, the scowl for it. Like, he just, just the way that he even, like, pulls up his pants and sets in a chair. And, like, the way that he uses his voice, uh, just that when uh, young Otis goes to give him his beer and is like, pour it. Like, you yeah. feel, like yeah. as soon as that, it's like everybody gets quiet and you're like, oh, crap. he has such a scary energy in it. And like, that's hard to do to be for your presence to be that frightening. Like, it takes a really good actor. And Chris Christopherson, I think, is so underrated as an actor. Like, he's a really great actor. What's also great about that, too, is he tells him that he's like aware that he might be running numbers out of the back of that place. Never once do we see a scene of Chris Christopherson doing any policing, no. any real honest work. <laughs> but you feel yeah. his presence, like you said, like a hand hovering over this town. Like it's so amazing. Like the minute he comes on screen, he just kind of envelopes you in this kind of evil presence. I think it's amazing. And, and he is doing like I think out of all of them, he's probably put, he's got the most shoe leather on. No, yeah, he's probably got the most the most on the fastball in some of the scenes, but I enjoy it. Like, it's not like, I think that, it's that not you need that for film. that guy. It, it, like that guy. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to be All, cartoonish. Everybody else is kind of laid back and you need that one guy. That's that, that is like just the hammer. That's just like scary. Yes. And he's so good at that. In a film where everybody's kind of moral code is up in the air and maybe like has more ambiguity in this film. He is like, you need him as the pure evil of just yeah. like, there is no like gray area for this guy. He is just a bad person. He's a murderer. And he's, and he's such a real guy too. Like, uh, like obviously there are like corrupt police officers and everything, but just his whole personality, like that is a guy I've like talked to. Like I know that guy, that energy and everything. Like for sure, he's fantastic. It's, 
it's such smart casting by John Sales because it, it's a name brand that people can associate with, but then see him turn. So it's not like he's just caught, like casting Chris Christopherson to be Chris Christopherson. The other part is Christopherson's a Texan. So it's not like having to work hard to emulate that kind of knowledge or to say to a, a British actor, to be like, okay, let's nail the voice. You have to act like you understand these people, that you understand the setting. Christopherson just comes into that pro- this project with that already nailed in. But then mm-hmm. the voice... And the voice is obviously great, but part of it is because this dude's been living on the road for 45 years of his career, however long Christopherson's been working at that point professionally, of hard living. Like, (laughs) he's he's not someone who's working on tour buses that are, like, perfectly manicured, and he's got everything that he wants. He's going He's a rugged country singer. Exactly. And that's what I think this part asked for, and it's such smart casting by sales to go out and find that guy rather than trying to make someone else look like that guy. And Chris Christopherson also, like, his music is socially aware. Like, he was a country singer that made, like, Laws Protection of the People, which is about, poli- like, violent police. You know, he made fun of the, like, heavy, like, conservative aspects of country music. Like, he was always very, like, uh, I don't know if I'd say political, but very socially aware and progressive for, like, that era, like, of country music. And, like, so it makes sense that he and John Sayles taste would match in that way like he would love to play a guy like this because he probably knew guys like this and experienced that you know like for sure like he's so it's such perfect casting other perfect casting it's joe morton just uh shout out to him terrific in this movie a guy that's kind of coasted off miles dyson and like not purposely but just hollywood being like ah we need a scientist yeah let's get miles dyson yeah he's 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 always a scientist Franchise Hollywood, yeah, older guy who plays a scientist or works in a lab of some capacity. But he's great in this. I mean, I don't think it probably got as any bigger than or two. You know, he's also in Speed and Speed Two, Dragonfly, which is kind of like what movie I really hold on to. Speed Two, (laughs) yeah, Speed Two. It's just he's the only one who came back, dude. They got back back. (laughs) Mac Attack is back. He's the only one that stayed loyal. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I, I stay down. Stand on business, as, as C.J. Stroud would say. Um, but Ron Canada, also great in this as well. He's a national treasure, Wedding Crashers, huge TV career. Josh and I, before the show, were running through the credits. Law & Order, CSI, mm-hmm. X-Files, Star yeah. Trek, The Shield, Frasier, Boston Legal. You name it, he was on it. Um, and we mentioned earlier Clifton James, who's in Cool Hand Luke, Live and Let Die, The Man with a Golden Gun, The Last Detail, uh, and Eight Man Out. Obviously, coming, coming back to work with sales on this. Just a terrific uh, cast. There is one thing I want to bring up, one actress that we haven't mentioned. Uh, first off, there's a great cameo by Frances McDormand where she no, is just... No, 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 hold we'll on. Get hold on. We'll get to her. We'll get to her in a certain category. Yeah, we got that. Don't worry. I, I also, I really like the actress. Uh, I think uh, the actress, her name, uh, Athena uh, Shandra Wilson. Yeah, that's who she is. She's on Grey's Anatomy and stuff now. That's where I recognize her from. But she's really good too, I thought. And she's from Houston. She's from Texas. So another Texan dog. Another classic good casting by John Sayles. Oh, nice stuff. Yeah. Oh, everybody else knew their stuff too, because Lone Star makes thirteen million on a three to five million dollar budget, uh, mm-hmm. which is a pretty successful pull for this kind of small independent film at this time. Sales also was nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the nineteen ninety seven Oscars. Uh, he awesome. ultimately 
Yeah, he ultimately loses to the Coens for their work on Fargo. But Lone Star is like still lauded over. It's appeared on the ballot for AFI's 10, top 10 in the Western category. And it's also soon to be released in January into the Criterion Collection. Okay. Uh, do you guys think this is a top 10 Western? Well, is it even a Western to you guys? I don't know. I'm curious about this. You could maybe say it's a neo-Western. Uh, maybe. I, I will say that if I had to make a list of like the top 5 or 10 Texas movies, it would be on there. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if I would say. I mean, I I mean, it has that. It has a a vibe of the West. I don't know if I would think of it as a classic Western in that way. Like, I couldn't really compare it to like a Fistful of Dollars or The Searchers yeah. or anything like that. But I mean, it definitely has. Like you say, like something like Hell or High Water is a Western. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's cars and like there are elements of <laughs> yeah. the West in some. In in it, so yeah. Nick, so, yeah. make the pitch. Make the pitch to us, Nick. Why is it? A no, western? I don't. I, I I don't think it's a western. I was just Ooh. kind of throwing. I think it was I a think trick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you made us look like a I, fool, Josh. I just I kind of I kind of wanted to get some opinions. I don't necessarily think it falls strictly into the western category. Um, I find the western genre having like probably like you, Tanner, like watched a ton of them. Just like a genre that is so steeped in lore and style in the time period that it is made in that it's hard to like almost it's not like gatekeeping gate like a gatekeeping thing but it's almost hard to like discern like who gets to come into that category now because we Mm -hmm. get such a different like radical approach to it whereas like i just have this like strong portrait of like what a western is in my mind Mm -hmm. that like this just almost doesn't fall into it and i don't know if that's the genre or me who's kind of like to blame for that but yeah i don't think it necessarily falls strictly into a western i think what you I said mean, not be, being from texas this movie feels so much like mm-hmm. texas you know yeah. i feel and so it. many little so many little character actors like or little characters in the background like things they'll say or do i'm like that's like so te- like it's so te- like there's a line where like one of the guys like look I'm about as liberal as the next guy, but you know, you're probably going to yeah. be the last white sheriff we have in this. Like, that. I'm like, I can hear someone I know saying that. Like, yeah. it's so, like, that is so, and I, I just, I love how, it's also the one Texas film I can think of, off the top of my head at least, that also incorporates, like, the Mexican culture in Texas. Because Texas has a strong Mexican culture, and you're like, it, it's so, I mean, it was a part of Mexico at one point. It's so steeped in Mexico culture as well. It's such a, like a, a just a, a mixture of all these cultures and everything and and I was really I remember the first time I watched it I was like I think this is one of the first Texas films I've seen that really examines all parts of the culture and, and even to the the one that uh the the line with Otis where he you know he's talking about how you know we're just as much Texas as the Mexicans and the white people like we were mm-hmm. you know like it it's not just the Texas in the classic cowboy sense you get Chris Cooper, you get Matthew McConaughey, you get Chris Christopherson, but you get all of these other things that I don't, you don't usually see in like No Country for Old Men or any of the Westerns that take place in like stereotypical Texas. I just, I really liked that. I thought that that was like something that like needed to kind of be seen. Like it was really refreshing to see that because it's so here, like it's so here, like the Mexican influence on everything and the Mexican culture and everything. I think that's a perfect segue into like the next thing that we're going to be talking about. And to me, one of the big things that I drew from this movie on this watch was history and who gets to tell it. It's a huge theme throughout the the movie. Um, and so reflective that our past is our present 
you know, it's timeless in that regard with lines like, winner gets the bragging rights, I was on the textbook committee, you call it history, I call it propaganda, present the complete picture, you know, like, have these phrases, like, ever felt more timely as we kind of go that, over this, this thing that lady, over textbooks and our education system and what's taught to children? Where she's like, where she has that line where she's like, now, I don't mind the music and the food. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I know this lady. I've heard her talk and I can't stand yeah, her. Like, I know exactly what this is. Yeah, I'm not too far away. I know Colorado is obviously quite a bit distance wise, but I think we share some things in culture for sure. And yeah, like, for I sure. 100% heard that same exact thing, been, have, having like spent a lot of time in the library over the summer about like what books should be going into the library, you know, <laughs> things like mm -hmm. that. I just found I mean, every one of the everyone in the nation has a Karen nearby. You know, it, it suffice to say, and this woman a, is so Karen. There is a specific, specific like tone yeah. though yeah. of like and of like there's like she just had like I that lady is like the mom of a kid I went to school with like that vibe yes. of like I talked to this lady so well, much. It's also it's also brilliant too because it's this like stupid unawareness of like I like these things from this culture that I can cherry pick, but yeah. all the rest of it I really kind of butt up against. It's like mm -hmm. it's just really like I like the aesthetics. Yeah. I like that part yeah. of it. I just don't care exactly. about your actual culture. Uh, exactly. There's also another line. Uh, one of I don't one of the I don't know if he was the cop. He's uh. But he he's tr he's the one that wants to build the jail. Sorry, and he uh, he's like, uh, we need to name this after uh, your dad. And he's like, oh, my dad doesn't need the name. And he goes, we can name every street sign after Martin Luther King, but we can't have our sheriff's name on yeah. there. Whatever. And yeah. I was like, yeah. I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard yeah. that. Yeah. So I found well, that to just be interesting. How America is just really kind of always having these conversations it's always going around mm. in the same washing machine around the same cycle and that's kind of what the movie is about like it's yeah. it's about all yeah. of these th and like the history of it it's about the history of texas of these people and their lives and their families and everything and that, that's what's mm -hmm. so it's just woven together so perfectly yes that's what i was going to say is that's what i really appreciate about this movie is it's not just about the political history of it and the suspicion of whose history is the right history politically and which is the one we should teach in school. It's about to these characters. What is the history that matters? For Delmar and the Payne family, is the history that matters that Otis abandoned him? Or is it the fact that he kept the records that showed like he followed his career throughout his army like stint? Is the history for Sam and Pilar the fact that they're related? Or is it the fact that they love each other? You know, there's all these questions that the movie asks about what actually matters and what do you want to hold on to in your past to kind of keep you going. Um, and not and yeah, go ahead. And not hammering you over the head with those things. You know, one of the things that I love on the second watch of this movie was Mercedes is the one who cuts the ribbon for Buddy's mm -hmm. statue. I mean, that's a oh, really yeah. interesting detail if you really like go back and rewatch it. But that has so much subtext to the character that like doesn't need a paragraph to be said of, you know, I did the best I could for you and, you know, Buddy was there and he was available and it just wasn't the right time for us to be together. There's none of that. It's just like exactly what you said. It's like, it's the reckoning with those ideas, not trying to correct them that I really enjoy. Yeah, like so many other versions of this movie would end with Sam realizing, oh man, my dad didn't kill that guy. I've been so hard on my dad. And if only we had more time, we would have made amends and everyone would be happy. And it'd be this very sappy, like, like, look, kids, just forgive your parents. They did nothing wrong. It's okay. But this movie is like, yeah, no, buddy did fuck up and Sam fucked up. And there's no way to correct that. And that's just life. And you have to figure out how to move past that thing. And, and we wasted live. so much time because of yeah. that. 
Like so much time is wasted and so many relationships are ruined because of the secrets and the things that weren't said or ignored or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so, it, it just, it felt so real. Like it just felt like real life to me. Like the, the complicatedness of it. I, I just really loved that about it. Uh, the other thing I had on here too was just kind of like sales as a stalwart of in American independent cinema. We've kind of talked about this already. Like his start with Corman, his unique approach to lampooning genre, being left behind kind of in, in a, a way in the mid to late 90s boom. I don't think he's regarded, like as I said, with the generation that kind of comes after him of like the Soderberghs, the Kevin Smith, Spike Jones, the Tarantino, Linklater. Those, yeah. The Linklater, all that Linklater stuff. Linklater kind of has a little John Sales in him time to yeah. time too. But this movie coming out in 1996, it kind of gets overshadowed by Fargo. Uh, I think this is just as good as, as, maybe not just as good as Fargo, but is doing something so similar to Fargo that I feel is, is an easier avenue for me to approach. I love Fargo. It's one of my favorite Coens, but it's like, it's so idiosyncratic and like abstract with what it's doing that I, I sometimes like, I go back to it for the fun of the movie and like, the the odd oddities of it then instead of coming back for the soul of something like yeah, this. Yeah. It's got like a pulpy kind of Cohen's pulpy kind of vibe to it. Yeah. Which is Everybody what I love about the Cohen's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I would say that this movie is like it it's I think it's able to be made to some extent because of the indie boom in the nineties, but it also doesn't succeed to the point that other indie movies do at the time because it's not as ambitious as indies become. You know, the first wave of the independent film directors start out very small. Your Reservoir Dogs, your Clerks, uh, your Slackers. Backers. But they mm -hmm. always increase in scale to the point where Quentin is making, you know, Jackie Brown by the by the Glorious 90s. Bastards. Yeah. Glorious Bastards. Soderbergh is going up with the, the Oceans in the 2000s. Linklater is going on to like School of Rock mid-2000s and the sort of well, stuff. But, school, but Linklater, he actually has somewhat similar of a route two sales because i was he, gonna say the same exact thing school of rock, i love it but school yeah. of rock was a movie that he took because he couldn't get a movie made mm -hmm. you know yes. he talked about that a little bit like once the 2000s came around like he got dazed and confused and he had this night i think like the newton boys too hurt him too that movie didn't do very good also <laughs> yeah. has mcconaughey, he, McConaughey yeah. yeah and uh yeah like and uh i don't know before sunrise is one of my favorite movies i don't know how successful it was at the time it doesn't seem like a movie that would have been that big so yeah. it's like like he, i mean if you think about it, even now like Linklater is still making indie movies i mean like everybody wants some we talked about that's yeah. a small movie boyhood even is like a is so spanning but it's just like a little mini indie movies they made every year like he's still kind of making the indie you're movies that he's always been doing you're, the you're working class movies too like similar to john sales yeah. you're hitting something that i totally agree on as i think Linklater and Sales are probably the most out of that generation, the most connected. I mean, everybody in Linklater's generation at this point has done something for a streaming service. He's just yeah. doing that now with like the Hitman. You know what I mean? And that's almost out of like, like you said, not necessity, but it's like Richard Linklater can just like put a movie out on Netflix. And unfortunately, like, unless you're a Linklater head, a lot of people aren't going to go and see that still. No. You know, and I feel like Sales kind of fell into that same exact category of like, I'm still going to just tell the honest stories that I want to tell and the films that inspire me. It doesn't really matter where it lands or who the audience is. I have that and it'll find its place. Mm -hmm. And that's what I kind of mean is that as sales ambition, I feel 
didn't grow with i think his reputation studios were less inclined to like give him the money he maybe wanted to the point where he's making a lot of movies in his later part of his career that no one's ever heard of uh whereas quentin and pta and all those guys they were like oh i want to go bigger i want to go bigger it's just like okay sure we'll, we'll go bigger with you because that's more comfortable for us for whatever reason sometimes do we know that he wanted to keep going big? Like, do we know that like maybe he wanted know. to go bigger and wasn't allowed to? Like, because Quint Quinn has such a like perfect like he got to do everything he wanted to. Like, right. it's so that's, unfair. Quinn, his is like the yeah scratch off ticket. Yeah, yeah he's like sp like kind of like a Spielberg where like he got in and then it was just he did all the things he wanted to or whatever. But yeah, but PTA PTA is a good one because PTA also makes like complicated. He doesn't make yeah. like easy watchable no. movie like he makes complicated films and he's had struggle getting them made but he's gotten them made like i know it was hard to get there will be blood made but he got it made and whereas john sales's films i don't know how it seems like he's probably having a hard he's I mean, they're not as big as there will be blood what you know what i mean so yeah. it's like yeah i i don't know but is also what are the stories that interest him because he may not well, be interested in doing anything big he may just want to make working class regular people movies and hollywood's in a place where they don't want to make those movies they want to make the avengers and they want to have their multiverses and all these things so people like richard linklater and john sales and people like that don't really they have to go work for netflix or they have to go do a show or something like that they don't get to make because like even like, in, even now, like, unless you're going to get a movie like that, it's got to be, like, an A24 thing or yeah. something. Like, yeah. it's got to be, and there's got to be, like, something really weird about it, too, that gets people in because it's kind of weird, like, you know? <laughs> well, like, A24 which is, is fine. Their machine onto their own because they're just great at marketing their films. Yeah. That's what but I think drives them. Yeah. It's just, like, I don't know if it's from, like, his ambition or if it's just, like, the nature of the industry, like, not letting one of our great voices work because he may not make them a billion dollars because it's like when David Fincher, when like, I remember when uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo came out, he said that it made money. It made a profit and he was supposed to do a second one. And, and the studio said like, but the Avengers came out. Like, why would we make girl <laughs> with the dragon tattoo money when we can make Avengers money? Yeah. Which was totally fine with me. That Fincher didn't make another uh, girl with the dragon tattoo movie. Well, I'm just saying as like an example, like the, it's that like race to like the big, yeah, it's totally. big. everything's big now you know and he doesn't really make big the thing i'll say about sales like just like as we're talking about it maybe his ambition as a filmmaker and a writer or at least as a director maybe doesn't like i'm not saying he he doesn't want to go bigger like that's mm -hmm. not necessarily true I, he might be very content doing the stories what he's saying but he also does throw his hat in the ring to write a Jurassic Park script. Yeah. <laughs> he also throws his hat in the ring to write a script for Steven Spielberg yeah. for an idea called Night Skies that becomes You e gotta eat. So, so you yeah. know what I mean? He, he's working on Mimic, Apollo 13. So, like, you do have to – exactly. You got to eat. You got to do, do that work. And he's somebody, I think, who, again, is like a Cassavetes who, like, even when he is doing that – or Nicolas Cage, like we talked about. It's like – I'm doing this because not only do I have to, but like I'm going to give this the same pass and the same work and dedication that I would Lone Star. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Speaking of people who don't give passion, maybe sometimes, or just like maybe too passionate, it's time to end the show with our vaunted award, Colonel Tom Parker Award. I am the legendary Colonel Tom Parker. You look lost. Get ready for the spotlight.
Uh, I only have two candidates for this week. Uh, number Uh-oh. one, uh, Nick, you remember this guy. Tanner, you don't know who this is. There's a guy in Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Next Generation, the Matthew McConaughey one, named W.E., and he just does like awful quotes. If you want to hear more about it, you don't want to watch that awful movie, go listen to the podcast. We did it's our second episode of this whole show. Maybe a mistake, probably a mistake. Um, <laughs> but that guy is horrific in that movie and just like really annoying. And and he's in Lone Star. And what happened was as I was watching Lone Star, I heard his voice and I went, oh, my God, that's W.E. from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I knew there was something wrong with my head because I knew that man's voice. Who is he in it? He's the he's like two scenes. He's the the deputy that catches Polar's son trying to steal the stereo. Where he's like, "Hey there, buddy. You know you gotta you gotta come on out or whatever." Or Chris Cooper says, "Like, yeah. where are you keeping that kid?" He's a very small role, but he got a CTP nomination just because it's We from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I was like, "Oh my god, this guy's in this movie." And he is he's probably one of my least favorite characters in cinematic history. <laughs> yeah. in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was I mean, trying to talk around it. No function. <laughs> function or purpose in that film whatsoever yeah. just to say stupid historical quotes that don't yeah. even have any context to the scene that's going no, on not at all yeah. but i but, want to talk about the next one yeah. yeah you can have this one i'm just gonna say <laughs> never thought she would be on this list but she's getting this award pretty handedly yeah uh francis mcdormand in all the good ways i think embraces yeah. <laughs> the ctp award that i like zany choices cowboys everything the way she's sipping from that straw and has like four bottles of gatorade just scattered across the home like her flipping from manic to depressed on the drop of a dime shows her early abilities as like one of our best working actresses. She's chewing the walls off of the few moments mm-hmm. she's in this film. And like you had a funny question here, Josh, of like which team is she a fan of? Like <laughs> she's got a Tory Aikman jersey, an Oilers hat, an A and M jacket and pillow, and then there's like a Longhorns banner behind her. Yeah. But I think that just speaks to the manic like choices that she's making throughout her life where she just really doesn't have any idea like what the final destination is i mean it's so great that she's in this performance where she's like almost doesn't even realize that she's divorced you know Mm -hmm. that she was married and that she had a divorce i think it's just marvelous work it's just um it's a lot to throw at in a good way of like she's memorable and like and it's more like a ctp because she's so distracting because she's Frances McDormand and she's just chewing the lines off of like this high school football table, like football players tape. She's like, ah, oh, he runs so fast. Have you heard about this guy's 40 yard dad? Like someone get her to the combine in Indy as the bunny character and have her do like a segment <laughs> with NFL network talking about like, I don't know, um, Drake may spiral. I don't know. Let's hear it. The way she goes, Hey Sam, you look skinny. It's yeah. just like, <laughs> have you met this man for the first time? Like it's just, it's brilliant. <laughs> Like, did you watch the draft? Of course you did. Uh, yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. Like, I don't think uh, Chris Cooper watched the draft. It's so funny how, like, because immediately you're like, oh, I see why these two got divorced because he's the most laid back guy yeah. in the world. And she <laughs> is so the opposite strong. of that. I will say, though, her pillow, she has little pillows on her couch, like little throw pillows that are navy blue with the Cowboys logo. And growing up, my grandmother had those pillows on her couch. You got to represent Big Blue at that point, exactly. you know. Yeah, that, that's a you guys thing. So yeah, well, I mean, your Packers aren't that much better, but we get your well, coach now, so you're welcome. He, but it, but it just adds to the the authenticity of the yeah, Texans picture. Exactly. If they remade this movie now, I'd be in the background and be like, "Nothing this team does matters." Shut up. <laughs> Why is that guy I in the movie? Yeah, <laughs> he's not <a> Texan. <laughs> it was just I don't know. They remade it. They thought it'd be funny to have a random guy there that was depressed about the Cowboys. Yeah, HBO remade it as like a modern premiere prestige TV one series, one season miniseries, and I, I don't know. They just threw him a bone. 
All right. We go. I've 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 got to go to Godzilla minus one. <laughs> I didn't think this was going to take as long as it did, but I'm going to be going to the movie soon. So, uh, Francis McDormand is the winner of the CTP yeah. award this week. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Tanner, thank you for joining us this week. And thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure having you on. Um, Josh, where are we going next week with the cast? Do you have a pick? Um, we oh. have to figure that out. It's either going to be uh, Unbreakable or it's going to be like the start of our Oscar season. We're not quite sure yet here, but we'll let you know. Unbreakable is great. I like Unbreakable. Yeah. I'll, I'll be listening to that one. Thank you, Tanner. <laughs> Thank you, Tanner. We appreciate Bruce you. Willis. <laughs> And we appreciate you, loyal listener. Like, rate, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. Check out that Instagram, road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out.